Welcome to The Scrum, a podcast from WGBH News covering politics and the media from Beacon Hill to the Beltway and beyond. Adam Riley is off for a few days. I'm Peter Kadzis of WGBHnews.org, and I'll be your master of ceremonies. Our theme today? It's a complex world. The Summer of Disruption. It's clear that Donald Trump has overtaken Jeb Bush as the putative Republican frontrunner, at least as measured by the national polls. Bernie Sanders has captured the imagination of many Democrats coast to coast. But what about the likely caucus goers and the probable voters in the early horse race states of Iowa and New Hampshire? The national media is working itself up over the prospect of a presidential run by Vice President Joe Biden. Is there any stake behind the sizzle? We'll be tackling those topics and more later in the show with pollster David Paleologos and the Boston Globe's Joan Vanaki. But first, the Trump Circus. We're joined on the line by Ben Schreckinger from Politico, who's been following the Donald on the campaign trail. Hi, Ben. Hey, Peter. Thanks for having me. Listen, a question I've been dying to ask the people following Trump. Do you feel like you're writing about a political footnote, or do you have a sense that you're writing about a main event? I think this is the main event. I think Donald Trump is the story of the first part of this presidential election cycle. I think that, you know, from what I saw, everybody was ready to dismiss uh, his seriousness about running, uh, the staying power of his support at every point along the way. Uh, And now the people that I talk to in the political world are uh, just coming to terms with the fact that uh, he's he's not going away soon, he's not going away overnight, um, and he is showing... Uh, the country, and especially the Republican Party, just how much discontent there is with the political class in this country. Yeah, ben, what's it feel like to be at a Trump event? What's, what's your gut tell you? What's the, the viscera you get? I've never personally been to a professional wrestling match, but uh, I've certainly seen them on TV. And it, it sort of feels like being at one of those. Uh, there's loud rock music. Um, I, I have to smile every time. Uh, he plays Hulk Hogan's theme song, uh, which is about being a real American and fighting for your rights and fighting for what's right, um, which sort of so perfectly captures the feel of these events. I am a real American, fight for the rights of every man. I am a real American, fight for what's right, fight for your life. You know, they're big, they're loud, they're entertaining, people are laughing, people are shouting. It is schlocky, and it's entertainment, and it's it's working for him. Listen, we have a clip here of Mr. Trump's interaction with Jorge Ramos. Let's take a listen. Excuse me, sit down. You weren't called. Sit down. Sit down. Sit down. Go ahead. No, you don't. You haven't been called. Go back to Univision. Univision aside, is that an unusual occurrence at a Trump event? Yes, that is the first time he has had a reporter physically removed from a press conference. I think sort of both of them were grandstanding there, and both of them really got what they wanted out of that. Um, I've been in very contentious pressers with Donald. Uh, I I was in Iowa just after he had insulted John McCain's war record, and he'll shout back and forth with the press. They'll shout at him. But 
that was sort of a new one. And Donald's sort of finding uh, almost every week new ways to, to be outrageous or to uh, transcend the norms of a presidential race. Uh, and more than anything, it just keeps people paying attention to him. Listen, in your coverage of Trump in Alabama, you conjured the ghost of George Wallace. And frankly, I've been waiting for someone to do this. Wallace had tremendous populist appeal. It's interesting, a lot of people may not remember that uh, in the Midwest, many people who were going to vote for Robert Kennedy uh, said that George Wallace was their second choice. How does Trump's populism translate? Sure. My, my first glimpse of this event was pulling up to the parking lot at this football stadium, and there was a man there uh, passing out sort of these neo-Confederate, neo-Nazi newspapers that featured stories about black-on-white crime. There were shouts of white power. Um, CNN captured some video where, uh, as Trump was speaking, uh, at least one person, and there were reports of several shouting out white power. Uh, so there is sort of that echo of this racism that has not completely left the Deep South. It, it was notable. It wasn't the prevailing mood. I think the prevailing mood was just a, you know, a big, fun rally with thousands of people coming out. Um, and he, Trump definitely is a populist, although sort of what's noteworthy about his populism is that he's also he's winning among college-educated Republican voters as well. Uh, so he's, he's sort of a, a populist in his approach, but he manages to have a wide appeal. It, it's quite a fascinating phenomenon. Listen, how do you get along with the Trump campaign? I mean, you strike me as going to great lengths to draw fine distinctions about different sorts of behavior. Does the Trump campaign appreciate that? That's a good question. You know, as you've seen, I think uh, the Trump campaign really takes their cues from the top. Uh, Donald is very forceful, and I think that his personality permeates the campaign. Uh, as we saw yesterday, he is not afraid to tangle with supporters. So the relationship with the campaign, you know, can be rocky at times. Um, there are multiple people that you're in touch with uh, on a campaign at, at any given time. Some of them have more experience dealing with the press than others. Um, beyond that, I, I probably shouldn't comment. I admire your restraint and your professionalism. One last question. Are you going to be in Boston when um, Trump goes to Ernie Bach's house for a $100 a head uh, fundraiser? That's a great question. That would be, um, I'm from Boston. It'd be a great thing to report on. I hope so. I hope I'll be there. Uh, whereabouts in Boston are you from? I'm from Belmont. Ah, we, yeah, I grew up in Dorchester, but I won't hold Belmont against you. Listen, <laughs> thanks. <laughs> thanks a lot. Bye-bye. Thanks. Bye. Now we turn to the other side of the aisle. My unindicted co-conspirators for this session are Joan Vanaki, op-ed columnist for the Boston Globe, who always informs and sometimes infuriates the political establishment. Hello, Joan. Hey, Peter. Nice to be here. And joining us by phone, David Paleologus, the director of the Suffolk University Political Research Center, which has been turning out headline-worthy polls for many, many years. Thanks, David, for the call. Thanks for having me. David, let's begin with you. You've published a new poll based in Iowa that, if I read correctly, should cool down some of the heat that surrounds the talk that Biden 
is uh, going to be an electable guy. Am I off base there? Yes and no. I, I think I think the data points to the fact that right now, today, pulls a snapshot in time that Joe Biden would be a stronger general election candidate than Hillary Clinton, especially in the swing states. But the problem is getting there. And I think this Iowa Democratic caucus goer poll uh, showed me, uh, and I was surprised at the results, how strong Hillary Clinton is in the face of the email controversies, news reports, rumors, allegations for two weeks prior to us going in the field. And even among Iowa caucus goers who say that the issue probably will hurt her in the general election if she were the nominee, despite that, they are voting for her in large numbers. Hillary Clinton, 54 percent among Democrats. Bernie Sanders, a distant second at 20 percent. Joe Biden at 11 percent. Martin O'Malley, 4 percent. A couple points for the other candidates and just 9 percent undecided. Well, before I turn to Joan, let me ask you about someone else's poll in New Hampshire. For the second time, Bernie Sanders seems to be besting Hillary at the moment. What do you make of that? Well, I've thought about it. I think that Bernie Sanders will will do a little bit better in New Hampshire. But in our crosstab, when we last polled, and in our poll, Sanders was moving uh, uh, against Hillary Clinton but hadn't overtaken her. But in our poll, the crosstab told me a lot about geography. If you look at that northwest region in New Hampshire that, uh, that abuts Vermont, Bernie Sanders' home state, and you look at those counties, Coas, uh, Grafton, Sullivan, Cheshire counties, there was a disproportionate amount of support. And once you got out of that region, that northwest region, um, the numbers were strong for Hillary Clinton, especially in the two big New Hampshire counties, Hillsborough and Rockingham County. So I'm not saying that that uh, that the polling is wrong. Sanders probably today is, is leading by some margin, or maybe it's within the margin of error. But what I'm saying is that because of geography, to me, looking at the polling that's, that the existing polling in South Carolina and the polling that we've done in Iowa and New Hampshire, New Hampshire looks like the exception, not the rule right now. Uh, in terms of the Democratic primary. I mean, unless something drastic happens with this this email controversy issue, she looks really strong. Very impressive numbers in the Democratic primary. Joan, does your gut tell you what the numbers uh, tell David? Well, I don't know about my gut, but how often is the polling in August before the primary season a predictor of who actually is the nominee? Say, for example, in August of 2007, wasn't Hillary leading Obama in both probably Iowa and New Hampshire? Yes. Right? And if I recall, John McCain's campaign was in a big swoon. He'd he'd run into a big problem on the immigration issue. History repeats itself. And he he had actually not disbanded his campaign, but had, you know, sort of gone away to rethink a strategy. So I do not think he was leading in August of 2007, yet he went on to become the nominee. So I just, I mean, the whole snapshot moment of time, the media, press, loves polls, but it doesn't actually predict what's going to happen when people get into that voting booth or go to the caucuses and actually have to cast a vote. You're absolutely right. 
and uh, and as as I said, what we're looking at, what I'm looking at, is is what I'm seeing today. Uh, and and uh, God knows, you know, I I of any pollster knows that you really can't stretch what you see today beyond beyond just that that it's a snapshot in time. Um, so the numbers can change, but. If you're Joe Biden, and to your initial question, if, if you're if you're Joe Biden, you've got to figure out. Even if you're in August and like McCain, you're rethinking your strategy. You've got to figure out a path. And so I'm looking at Joe Biden, who, you know, all reports uh, you know, are signaling to me that you know he's leaning towards towards making this run. What is the path with Bernie Sanders so strong and such a committed following in New Hampshire? Uh, Hillary Clinton, such a strong commitment from women, despite the email controversy. What is Joe Biden's path, not only to make room for himself in New Hampshire, but also to win Iowa? I mean, you've got 9% right now undecided. I think a political operative would say, well, the Hillary Clinton numbers could rotate away to, to Joe Biden. But there are a couple of cross currents there. Number one, you know, you've got that strong loyalty factor. Number two, you've got Martin O'Malley, who's now at 4% and probably will, will bubble up into the high single digits. Those young voters that generationally that identify with Martin O'Malley are going to potentially cut into Sanders voters in Iowa, potentially, and, and even to some Biden voters. So Biden has to figure out a path so that he can at least win or be competitive in either Iowa and New Hampshire. Joan's yeah. looking, uh, I, I'm sorry, I, she's looking very thoughtful. I know, I'm waving my finger in the air, but you can't see me. <laughs> I just wanted to say that's why people are talking about South Carolina, right? You right. give Iowa to, to uh, Hillary, you give New Hampshire to Sanders, and then Biden wins South Carolina, and you've got a tie. You're all, and, and, all three of who, them then go on to, to fight another and, day. And, and again, I have, I don't have a, a, a dog in this fight, to, to, to use an old expression, but if you take that example, in South Carolina, who wins minority voters and who wins women, which are, the, which are two big drivers of Democratic turnout in South Carolina? Well, conventional wisdom would say that the women and the minority voters go to Hillary Clinton. Um, it didn't work out that way for her the last time in South Carolina, if I recall. Of course, she was running against Obama, and that's a whole different, right. a whole different um, element to the race. But um, I don't know. Women right now, the polls are showing that women are not, I mean, they're with Hillary, but they're still, the, the trust factor is a factor with women as much as, as it is with men. So let, let me... I'm, seeing that, I'm seeing that only in... Uh, general election polling. I think when you there's a, the difference between a, 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 a super voter, Democratic voter who's a woman versus an independent, uh, we're seeing two different profiles. The trust factor is killing Hillary Clinton in the general election. There's no question about it. It's hurting her among independents as well as the general electorate. But again, focusing on the Democratic primary, what this poll taught me, and, and Joan, I agree with you. I thought looking at all the polling and the trend lines and the news news reports and the way everything was moving up until we went into the field in Iowa, I expect, I was thinking that Sanders would be within striking distance, would be eight, ten points back. And when the numbers came back, where voters were saying, yeah, I think the email controversy is going to be problematic for her in the general election, but I'm still voting for her. That told me a lot in terms of how delicate 
uh, a, a needle that needs to be thread if you're Joe Biden. That's all. Let's talk about the emails for a moment here. The other day, I went online and read all that are available. Some are redacted. My conclusion is that there was a lot of diplomatic chit-chat, a lot of stuff that may, after the fact, be classified because that's the polite thing to do. But there didn't seem to be, in substantive terms, any there-there that the national security was compromised. On the other hand, this whole event reminds me of Whitewater, where at first it sounded like there was a lot of juicy stuff with Whitewater, but by the time it was all over, there really wasn't much there. The story was the Clintons' resistance to dealing with Whitewater, and it strikes me that we um, have that whole situation all over again. Um, Joan, any thoughts? Well, it does sound familiar. It sounds like Whitewater. It sounds like Travelgate. It sounds like a lot of the past Clinton scandals in um, quotation marks where um, something has happened. They've, you know, resisted providing information. They've skirted the rules um, and it gets blown into a big, dark cloud. In my mind, there's no question that Hillary made a mistake with this receiver in her home, and she yeah. made a mistake in waiting as long as she did in, in getting this out. Um, so she's made some real tactical mistakes and handed her political enemies a weapon, which you never want to do. And I find her, the strategy now, really kind of puzzling. It's denial. Um, don't address it. Don't deal with it. Send out tweets about Jeb Bush as if it's going to go away. And she may be thinking that, look at. The Clintons collectively have been through all sorts of scandals and they've always managed to come out, or at least Bill Clinton has always managed to come out ahead and still win an election. I don't know if the same standard applies to her. I do think there's a tougher standard for her on several levels. Let me ask a question here. How does she get out of this? David, any thoughts? <laughs> well, I'm not a lawyer. So, so politically, you know, no, no, I, good, I, I good point, well I, taken. Yeah, I think she's I, taking too much advice from lawyers, quite honestly, because this isn't a legal question; it's a political question. Yeah, I think her her style, and uh, you know, I'm just beginning to learn as we have media partners in in the polling world. I'm learning the media business a little bit at a time, and I understand that there are a lot of journalists who have said to me, you know, that. They they don't like being stonewalled. That they don't like not having access to her and and being given you know talking points and it's and it's it's not a free flow. Um, however, you know you're innocent until proven guilty. One of the one of the items in in the Iowa poll, we point blank asked. I hadn't seen this on any other polling. Did she break the law? Nine percent of Democrats said she broke the law. Now, if that changes, then the whole Joan, I, I would agree with Joan. Then everything changes. Right. If uh, she's indicted, it's over. <laughs> right. That, that, that's right. That's right. Because a lot of the loyalty will pair away if this becomes more of a legal issue. And I don't know how the timing of all of that works and, and, and the perception. I do agree that she is vulnerable in the general election. I do agree that Biden would make a better general election candidate. But we've got to take this one step at a time. And I'm looking at a Democratic primary where people are, you know, 
they were underestimating her. I mean, I believe her organization looked at Iowa as the, the first place where they made a, a crucial mistake, and they went out and they organized in those 99 counties, and we called every one of them in our poll. And, she, man, she is strong, is, is, is all I'm going to say. I monitored those early calls. I've listened to their voices. Uh, people were saying, yep, it's going to hurt her. I'm, she's my vote. I'm, you know, And that's Iowa. And if we all think about that, it's only one state. And Joan's right about that. And, but New Hampshire, you know, she pulled America out of the, uh, out of the hat in 2008. And, and as you recall, Suffolk University had a couple bellwethers showing that Hillary Clinton was going to be Barack Obama. And that was a very tough experience for me, but it turned out right, and and she 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 came out of nowhere when all the polling showed her losing to Obama, and she closed the gap and ended up pulling it out. So I'm not writing off New Hampshire, and if Sanders loses Iowa and New Hampshire, at that point it has to be either Biden or or Hillary Clinton, and if it is Hillary Clinton, you know, unfortunately. She's going to get gobbled up on the trust issue among independent voters in the general election. Right. You know, I don't write her off either. Um, she won New Hampshire that time by, what was it, something like 5,000 votes. Um, but she dug deep inside and she pulled out a Hillary Clinton that was um, a vulnerable but kind of winning candidate. And so far that Hillary, I, I, I was on, I was just at one event in New Hampshire um, and I've been following the rest like everybody else just by what I'm reading and seeing on, on TV. But I don't see that Hillary yet. Now, you both, and correct me if my assumption is wrong, you both seem to be focusing on Hillary first, Biden second, without a lot of consideration being given to Bernie Sanders and his ability to grow. Where do you both see Sanders going in the next several weeks? There was some thinking that Joe Biden's entrance would help Bernie Sanders, and it may. It certainly could help in New Hampshire because, again, Sanders has that northwest region and many progressives in Hillsborough and Rockingham County. So he's got a strong loyalty in New Hampshire. Um, but when we looked at the second-choice vote, that was, that was pretty interesting in Iowa because if Biden opted out of the race, Biden voters were telling us, and again, it was a small subset, so, you know, footnote this comment, but Biden's second-choice voters were going first to Clinton, 39%, then to Sanders, 29%, then to O'Malley, 18%. So I'm, I don't have enough evidence beyond, you know, in terms of our own polling that Biden will help Bernie Sanders. And he must in order for him to, to proceed. Now, it could be that we get to South Carolina and Biden cuts into some Hillary Clinton support among women and minorities, and Sanders holds his progressive base in South Carolina, which isn't much. It's only 14, 15 percent right now, and it becomes a closer race. But that's a bit of a stretch for me. Um, so I think Sanders, because you have two polls showing him leading in New Hampshire— now the expectation, like Obama versus Clinton in 2008, going into um, January and February, is going to be that he's an automatic to win that. If he doesn't win New Hampshire, there's a lot of pressure on him. So he's got to show strength outside of New Hampshire. 
Well, before I say how I see Bernie Sanders, I'll start off by saying that after that first Fox debate, I wrote that Donald Trump is unelectable. So I, I, could, I, I may be wrong. I could be wrong on that, and I may be wrong on this as well. I guess I see Bernie Sanders like Howard Dean when he was running against Kerry. He had huge crowds. I went to events where there were thousands of people jumping up and down and, and Howard Dean acolytes. Then he lost Iowa to Kerry. Kerry beat him in New Hampshire, and everything just fizzled. I don't think Sanders has been really scrutinized and subjected to real press coverage. It's all about these big rallies. I don't know that people really know who he is beyond a kind of, I don't want to say cartoon character, but but not a very deep character. Let's talk about Donald Trump. Joan, you were just saying that you wrote after the debate that Donald Trump couldn't be elected president. Well, Noam Schreiber, writing in New York Magazine, um, reached the same conclusion today and said, Trump can't win because he is crazy. That was the headline. And he said he was crazy. He defined it by being that Trump doesn't really know what he's going to say next about anything and that that's the political equivalent of being crazy. Well, I'm not chagrined. I mean, I... I do believe he's unelectable, but I stand open to the possibility of being wrong because you have to be that way when you're when you're covering sports or politics because yeah. you never really know what the outcome's going to be. Um, he certainly you know captured the imagination of a certain segment of the population, and I guess I look at it this way: if in these polls, these current polls, show that he's leading Republican primary voters with 35 percent of the vote. David, tell me if I'm wrong if I think about it this way, but that means that 65% of the people being polled are not for Donald Trump. They're spread out over this vast array of other Republican candidates. And once you winnow down the field, that will change the dynamic. And after a while, I just think this act has got to wear thin on people. Um, Again, he hasn't really been subjected to any really tough media scrutiny. Oh, yeah, people call him crazy. But when are we going to read the stories about his business deals, about his bankruptcies, even about his personal life? Um, People have had less colorful personal lives than Donald Trump, and it's been seen as a real albatross around their political lives. And, you know, he's just sort of skated over a lot of things. Yeah, Megyn Kelly asked him some tough questions about what he said about women, um, and he's managed to be a bully, which seems to be his, his you know, primary M.O., um, I guess I come down to the side that I still think he's unelectable. David, l- let me, um, you're a numbers guy, so I want to ask you a uh, subjective question, which feel free <laughs> to answer with uh, using numbers. But as I watch the Trump campaign unfold, I see him increasingly... Uh, communing with the dark side of American politics, the darker side of populist feeling, anti-government feeling. That's certainly true with the way he plays the uh, immigration card. George Wallace had race. Donald Trump has immigration. Not a perfect comparison, but I think one that'll hold up at least until this podcast is over. What, What do you make of my notion that uh, Trump is an agent of the dark side of American politics. It, it's possible. It's reflected in the unfavorability numbers in the general election, but he keeps changing that equation in, in the initial polling among 
all voters is unfavorable was in the 60s, and, and some polls higher or, or just under 60. Now it's in the 50s, and it's dropping. So he's changing that dynamic. In, in terms of the electability issue that Joan raised, um, I think Joan's ahead of the curve here in the sense that she sees, I think, eventually an outcome that we may all get to. But what's relevant for that outcome is the size of the field. Now, oftentimes people say that it's Donald Trump's ego that is the problem. And I would argue that it's the egos of the other 16 Republican primary challengers that are keeping Trump propped up. Because if he's getting 30, 35 percent, that's good enough to win Iowa if 17 are on the ballot. And and uh, and if they're stubborn enough, those other candidates to stay in and split up the other 60, 70 percent of the vote, then he's going to be there in many, many states. However, if that field winnows to four, uh, four or five candidates, or at least four or five major candidates, I think Jones' scenario works that he probably won't grow far further beyond 30, 35 percent, and that someone else will, will overtake him. Um, so to me, the, his strength in the primary is directly correlated to the high number of opponents he has. But if that number drops, then his number, you know, his probability of winning the Republican primary drops because those voters are going to rotate, at least according to our polling, they're going to rotate to people like Rubio, who is very popular and who's in, in, in a lot of our polling is the top second choice for a lot of these other candidates. Trump is not a top second choice. You either love him or hate him. Let's close. I want to ask both of you a multiple choice question. Um, uh, it, it's pretty simple. Um, Donald Trump will, A, be the Republican nominee, B, form a third party, or C, it's too early to tell. Well, that's, I'll pick C. Oh, <laughs> by the way, a perfectly valid answer. I thought you were going to say not be the nominee, because I would pick not be the nominee. No, no, no. How about you, David? Well, if it was today, I, he, he would be the nominee if it was today, but again, polls change. Um, but I think if the it really de- again it really depends on what the other Republican challenges do. If they stay in, he, Trump's going to stay at or near the top through with many of these states. And if you've got a brokered convention. You don't want an expert deal maker. You know, uh, <laughs> if you're not a Trump supporter, he he. If there's anybody who can make a deal, delegates, he'll make the deal. So if it's a brokered uh, convention, you know, I. I you know, I wouldn't discount his ability to navigate that. If there's another option uh, in the Republican primary, I think Rubio is the best chance. Yeah, well, Rubio happens to be the guy I think at this point is going to gather. But you still didn't answer one, two, or three. I'll go first. I think two, form a third party. I guess I would say too early to say also. Okay, so so I'm the fool out in the plank. I, I definitely don't think he's going to do the third party. I don't. I don't. I don't think that's. That's going to happen, um, even though he's had his, his issues with Fox TV, um, uh, Fox News. Um, and, uh, you know, as I say, if it were today, he would be the nominee. Uh, he'd be winning all. What state is he losing right now today? Okay. But nobody's voted. Yeah. That's all right. they've done is oh. answer questions over the phone. Picky, <laughs> picky, picky. <laughs> 
thanks a, <laughs> thanks a lot folks okay thank you That's going to do it for this installment of The Scrum. Want to get our podcast delivered to you hot and fresh off the griddle? You can subscribe on iTunes or find us on Stitcher, SoundCloud, or at our website, wgbhnews.org scrum. Send us hate mail at scrum at wgbh.org. Thanks to our producer, Amanda McGowan, our engineer, Alan Mattis, I'm Peter Katzis. The Scrum is a production of WGBH News. Thanks for listening.